Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the philosophical and the practical aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have a road test of the Cherry Emoda 5, a Chinese small SUV. And in our interviews, there are hints coming from Japan that Toyota may make a new Celica. We discuss the history of the previous models and what the new one should or could be like. And we chat to a gentleman who made from the ground up a replica of the 1960s exotic endurance race car, the Ford GT40. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials. Look for Cars, Transport and Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 21st of October 2023. Last week we road tested the Toyota Camry Hybrid. Gave it a pretty good wrap. Now, during the week, Toyota has decided to stop taking more orders on this vehicle at the moment because of high demand and limited supply. I'd like to think that this program had that sort of impact, but I may be dreaming. You're listening to Overdrive. Car manufacturer Cherry, spelt with one R, is, depending on which part of their press release you believe, China's seventh or ninth largest vehicle manufacturer, which is state-owned and headquartered in Wuhu. There are around 40 vehicle manufacturers in China still going at this stage, and Cherry sold over 1.2 million vehicles in 2022. At the end of March 2023, they relaunched into the Australian market with one model, a small SUV called the Emoda 5, which sounds like a large Asian lizard. They had previously tried to establish themselves in the Australian market and sold small sedans here between 2011 and 2015. They appear to be getting some foothold into our market, as while they have only been available in six of the nine months so far this year, they are outselling companies such as Jeep, Peugeot and Citroën. We've just tested the Emoda 5, and it states its claim for your consideration based on a pretty good price, but certainly a long list of features and a seven-year warranty. It is sold with two models, the base model and the EX. There's only one engine, a 1.5-litre turbo petrol, producing 115 kilowatts and 232 newton metres of torque, with the engine driving the front wheels through a CVT transmission, which is not my favourite way of gearing a car, but in this case, it doesn't appear to be as annoying or intrusive as some other vehicles on the market. The exterior looks modern and a little different with a particular use of red highlight features on the EX model, along the door sill and on the brake calipers and at certain parts of the mag wheels. The striking feature of the interior is the modern dashboard with two large screens, the centre infotainment screen and the second being the one in front of the drivers, with all information presented in digital format, and both screens are 10 and a quarter inches in size. This is the modern look often seen in electric vehicles, where the dash design has been from scratch rather than like many cars that still have a large infotainment screen, 
but it looks like it's been added to a more traditional layout. Both variants come with standard safety features such as lane change assist, lane departure warning, blind spot detection, adaptive cruise control, front collision warning, rear cross traffic alert, rear cross traffic braking, automatic emergency braking, traffic jam assist, traffic sign recognition and intelligent headlamp control. This has helped the vehicle achieve a 5 star ANCAP safety rating scoring its highest numbers for protecting people within the vehicle, but not quite as high for vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians. The list of technical features is significant, but the application is not always as refined as it might be, which can be frustrating and or annoying. When you unlock the door and get into the car, even before you've started it, it is playing a musical background, and while it is soft, I instinctively tried to turn it off, without success. The indicators give a strong computer-generated sound, which I immediately wanted to tone down or change. Jaguars used to be the best sound, which was like two billiard balls clicking together. I started to get used to the cherry sound, although I became a little less annoyed. Might be a better way to describe it. The lane keep assist function can correct the vehicle rather aggressively and does not appear to include a lane centering ability, which means that it does not start to correct the vehicle until you've reached the line marking. And this can also lead to you wandering between the left and right lane delineation. And the lane keep assist appears to stop working with even the slightest bends in the road, although after travelling on a motorway for a while, The vehicle did flash a statement up on the screen in front of the driver suggesting, I think, that we could turn on a better system. But I really don't know because because it wasn't there long enough for me to read. The gear lever has a button on the side which is easy to press, but you don't want to do that in most situations. If you press the button as you pull it into drive, it takes it into manual And every road tester struggled when first starting out because they thought the car had failed and locked itself into gear. The speed limit assist system beeps at you regularly when it thinks that you are exceeding the speed limit, which may not always be the case. This can happen in some other cars. But in a Cherry, if you turn it off, it then turns off showing you what it thinks the speed limit is based on sign recognition software. Other beeping that can become annoying includes the lane keep assist, but there is an option to turn it from making a noise to simply vibrating the steering wheel, which I like a lot. The entry level price is $29,990 and an extra $3,000 for the EX model, which Cherry has now in both situations made a drive away figure. Yet this is still $6,000 more than the entry-level MG ZS, which, however, does not have nearly as many standard features, and places this well-equipped Cherry around the base levels of other value-for-money vehicles on the market, such as the Kia Seltos. So, in conclusion, the Cherry Amoda 5 can take more than a normal amount of time to get used to, but it has a lot of features for the price if you can live with its idiosyncrasies. You're listening to Overdrive. 
The heritage of the first cars in general, and then sports cars in particular, after the Second World War, was one of adventure where you understood the mechanics of the vehicle and often had to do running repairs. It was a time of grease under the fingernails. Then the Japanese invasion of the car market in the 70s and onwards introduced cars that weren't so much sports cars, but merely cars that looked sporty. It was more painted fingernails rather than anything to do with grease. In part, really, although there was an exception for racing, the Celica was part of that trend. Now, there are hints coming out of Japan that there may be a new Celica on the market, the first one since 2006. Someone who understood the zeitgeist of the period of the 70s and onwards was our very own Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys. Alan, did you ever own a Celica? David, I owned three Celicas. Well, joint. the first one I owned on my own, the uh, next two were um, joint with my then partner. And so I had a first generation one, the facelifted model uh, was a 78, absolute little banger that was. And then the uh, the head, the flip up headlight one, which I think was the third generation and a fourth generation. That first generation one made its name at Bathurst and race cam was part of that Williamson, Wilkinson, was it the driver who was always behind these big Camaros that slowed him down on the corners, but he couldn't overtake on the straights. <laughs> That's right. Yet it morphed into a hairdresser's car, didn't it? That remains one of the great labels that have been given to the vehicle, unfairly perhaps. I think it's completely unfair. I think uh, when you looked at the the car itself, it had a lot of presence and personality. But Celicas, were they also an example of the time where we had moved, as I say, from grease under the fingernails to perhaps painted fingernails? It was becoming a commodity rather than a mechanical adventure? Well, yes. I mean, there's no doubt that that's certainly part of it. But I think it was all about the look. So, you know, I'm reminded of my very first car, which was that 18-month-old uh, facelifted Generation 1, and I felt like a king. And it really didn't matter how it drove. They were still pretty modern in their engines, by today's standards not, but they were still, you know, overhead cams and things. That's right. But uh, I think still it was the general way the car drove, you know, it, it felt sporty-ish. And I think if you held your mouth the right way, it handled that way as well. But uh, <laughs> it really, really did come down to, to talent rather than anything else. And uh, so mine always felt more like a... And I think that's where the shopping cart uh, moniker came in, you know, the um, hairdresser's car and so forth. Yeah. It was one that you didn't have to be a rev head to take on. You might have taken on for the, well, for want of a word, elegant or certainly stylish look to it rather than just necessarily an aggressive look that you might associate with a performance car. Well, I think our what generation was a 93 or 90 something like that 93 with the pop-up headlights i think that was stylish and those cars now have become classics and i think if you had one of those now you'd be very happy you nearly considered buying a gt4 didn't you the all-wheel drive one in which the rally cars were based that's right you regret that now well, it was a matter of timing. It was going to be something like uh, a 13 or 14-month wait 
Ah. And uh, there was a limited number of them and you had to get in early and there was all of that sort of stuff. And I think from memory, the um, RAV4 was coming in around the same time as when buying one of them. And uh, you got all that flim flam from the from the uh, salesman. And I think we were just getting over it after that. And we said, what can we walk out with next week? Hmm. And in the end, it was the the ST. Your last Celica wasn't a GT4, just a front-wheel drive. How much was that? I was stunned. We kept uh, we were changing cars about every two and a half to three years ish. I don't know why we just got bored with them, and we went in and it was fifty thousand dollars for. I don't think we even got any extras for a uh, just a an ST liftback. That's over a hundred thousand dollars in today's terms. And we got the five speed manual, of course. That car to me didn't feel special and. I didn't like the look of it. I didn't particularly want to get it, but uh, my partner insisted. And um, so we, we kind of went along with it. I think that might have been nicer in the GT4 guys. The last model that was particularly ugly, I thought. Uh, well, we, we may vary there. There's a, a, a friend of mine who used to import the convertible models as uh, grey imports to Australia. And she imported that model and the model before, the two last models we owned. And they looked much, much nicer as convertibles. That 1999 to 2006 model, uh, I think, looked... I, I didn't like it at all. Not at all. Were they ever a gay icon? Yeah, plenty of gay guys had them, but I don't know that they were an, a gay icon as such. As I said, you said they were a, a hairdresser's car and a lot of gay hairdressers. Is there a place in the market for a small nippy? But has it got to have then that very hero car to it, like the GT4 was, the earlier model? Well, I think what Toyota want is what Supra should have been and somehow has missed uh it's an affordable sports car. So uh, the Supra, which, of course, is a, a BMW with a roof, BMW Z4 with a roof, it's lovely to drive. It now comes out in a manual. You and I think it's magnificent, but they don't sell a lot of them. And the reason for that is because it's expensive. And what they need is a sporty car that's not expensive. And it's why Mazda MX-5 sells reasonably well for what it is considering the passenger car market is all but disappearing. The MX-5, though, is still very much like a little Austin Healey Sprite, but a nippy little car. I, I think that is the greatest heritage development from the time when the English Austin Healeys and so on, the small ones, even to the bug-eyed Sprite, were cases of creating something that wasn't over the top in design, but was just functional for exactly what you wanted, which was not a hugely powerful car, but obviously not a very weighty car. I think what they wanted, David, was a car that was a pleasure to drive. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. As always, David, I'm happy to talk about sports cars. <laughs> And that's Alan Zervis from GayCarBoys.com. And here's a reflections on the Salikas of past and what it might just be in the future. And the full interview with Alan will soon be placed on our website at DrivenMedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia.
Jim Cowden is the founder and creative energy behind Oily Rag Studio that produces sculptured lighting installations. But the name Oily Rag and the fact that we first met Jim at the St Ives Cars and Coffee Show suggests a strong motoring background. One of his last motoring construction activities was recreating from the ground up one of the great classic cars built for endurance racing, the Ford GT40. I caught up with him for a chat and began by asking what his ideas were for a career when he was young. Yeah, I actually, um, I did want to be an architect originally. That was sort of, you know, when I was like 15 or, you know, coming to the end of your schooling, 15, 16, I definitely, architecture was something that was strong. And um, uh, at the time, unfortunately, the building industry was in a bit of a collapse and um, so there really wasn't any jobs. And I, I just ended up migrating into uh, a automotive apprenticeship, really. Uh, my brother was a motor mechanic, so he, um, he'd he already got his job and, and uh, an interview came through and he didn't need it anymore because he was already employed. So I went and sat the interview and I ended up getting the job. So <laughs> here I am, 45 years later, I, I was still mechanicking, you know. So, But look, it gives you good grounding, discipline. You began to particularly work with aluminium. You enjoyed that? I love aluminium. It's just you can really do so much with it and you can shape it and uh, you can shape it cold, you know, as you can with steel as well. But it's, it's yeah, it's people think it's a black art, but when you just, the more you do, obviously it just becomes second nature. And, uh, yeah, I love the colour of it. And you can texture it a lot more than metal, you know, just through different grades of paper and different directions. You can make it hologram. So it's quite, it's a bit more of a creative metal. It's softer. So, you know, if you make something for somebody, they got to look after it. Your last major motoring project, you wanted to rebuild or build from scratch a very historic car. What was that? That was a um, 1966 Ford DT40. I just have a passion for that period. To be honest, I, I love the P4 Ferrari, which is what the Ford raced against um, at Le Mans at that time. And I just think that is the best thing. And ever since I was a kid, I loved the P4. But there was really not a lot around as far as trying to get body work and things at that point. Because you've got to understand when I started that car, I was a different guy at the end of it. <laughs> you start out where you're just going to buy things and, you know, fit it and you'll get this and you'll use that and blah, blah, blah. But that's not how the car turned out. It ended up, I pretty much uh, made everything in the end. And, and so when you get to the end of it, your skill levels are much, much higher and nothing scares you and you have a different mind. You know, you can plan things out better. You look at something differently. And, um, yeah, now I would undertake a P4 standing on my head and I did start one of those projects I actually did all the drawings for it and got all the bodywork uh, profiles and one thing and another I was going to do it and then I just um, after I started driving the GT40 I thought I don't need to I know guys like collecting cars but space and time is also a problem you know we're talking here about the cars that were long distance endurance car racing Le Mans 
Yes, and that was actually one of my deciding factors not to build the P4 because I already had the the, the Ford and I, I'd been driving it in um, events. You know, there was Newlon Nationals. I did two years in that in the Ford team. Um, so we did hill climbs. We went to Bathurst, Bulladeela Hill Climb. There was, uh, you know, obviously Eastern Creek and one thing or another. I've, I've uh, also done uh, work down at um, Phillip Island with it. And what I realised was it's not very good on small circuits. So um, I actually then started the process of building a, a 206 SP Dino Ferrari. And I actually built the chassis, machined all the wheels, and I had an engine on it. So it was fairly well in. There was no bodywork at that stage, but all the suspension and mechanicals had been pretty much figured out. Uh, and then I went through a divorce, and, um, and basically after it sat for three years, I didn't have it in me after that. The momentum had gone. And the reason I built the 206 is it's a short track car. They're, they are like a P4. It's like a sister to it, except that being a V12, it's actually a, a V6 motor. Uh, Rear-engined, same year model, actually, as the GT40. This is 1966. Very pretty. Very, very pretty car. And um, I sold that to a young engineer, and he's still continuing on with it. Uh, I have contact with him and the car. Yeah, that was one of my realisations was um, I was going to end up with two vehicles that suit high-speed circuits. And just being a weekend warrior, you know, I just wanted something you could do a hill climb or, or go down a Wakefield Park and, and have something that would suit. And doing a V6 car is way cheaper than doing a V12 car. You know, there's just less of it. Gearboxes aren't as crucial you know, all those sorts of things, it, it just, the cost just drops dramatically. So that was a good thing for me. How often do you drive it? Every week, yep. Yeah, it looked like one of those wankers at the coffee shop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you must get people come up and talk to you about oh, it. I'll tell you what, the other day I went to a servo, and this happens all the time, I filled it up with some fuel. Somebody talked to me while I was filling it, I went in, a lady talked to me about it while I was in the service station. And on the way out, another guy talks to me. And it's like that a lot. And, you know, look, it's great because I've really met some great people with that car. I have to say that would be one of the reasons I wouldn't want to sell it is I've met aircraft engineers, automotive engineers who work for, you know, like serious jobs like GM and things like that. It's a calling card. They want to come and have a chat, and then you find out what they're doing. I'm more interested in what they do, and and you get to meet all these people with these interesting jobs that, you know, there's an, an interaction between what you do and what they do. It's all engineering, and you learn things. You learn things. Some guy will tell you something. You go, oh, yeah, all right, I didn't know that. And that happened with the engine, the, the aircraft guy. We were just chatting about uh, he did historic planning, so... I said, oh, the body on my car wouldn't be as good as your aircraft. And he goes, no, your car's body is way better than aircraft. Oh. Which surprised me. But then he talks about, he said, oh, so do you do strapping and bonding? And I said, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And um, he said, oh, you've got to have little air straps everywhere. He said, because basically there's a current running through the whole car because of the battery system. And he said, if the door is not, um, the same current flowing through it as the rest of the car, it will corrode, right? 
And he said that that part will start corroding. And when he said it, I thought, you know what? Over the years, I've noticed things like that. There's little earth straps on doors. And in the old days, they used to have an earth strap that went from the bonnet to, to the chassis. So the bonnet was on its hinges, but it had an earth strap to the chassis. And I, it all just dawned on me, well, that's what that is all about, is about having the same current running through the car because it, it can end up having corrosion. You know, you throw water on it and um, a salt atmosphere and next thing you know you got a battery and um, so yeah it's, it's these are the things you learn it's not uh, someone being famous where everyone just looks at you it's a, a a reason to start a conversation i mean the word conversation absolutely yes yes not just a lecture but a conversation yeah and again yeah well getting back to your thing yeah that is the, one of the great things with that car and and for 12 or whatever years it is that I've been on the road, that is um, been one of the things I do like about it. So we look up oilyrag, O-I-L-Y-R-A-G dot com dot A-U. Oilyrag Studio. Studio. Studio dot com dot A-U. Yep, yep. So um, all the stuff's on there. Like I say, I've got to do a little update. I've got a few more now. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty much on there. It's very colourful. Like I say, a lot of handmade glass, and um, and you get some really good colours with the glass, and it's fantastic. But, yeah, I like to make them. Even if they're not on, they need to look quite aesthetically pleasing, you know. So yeah, I like art. I like design. I paint. I don't sell anything. I paint. I just paint for myself. I find it quite calming. I've always had a pen or a pencil in my hand for ever since I can remember, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm quite good at drawing and that sort of stuff. So um, I find it's easy. I, I don't struggle with it. But you also have the artistic flair. Your lighting is very bespoke, isn't it? Most lighting is pretty boring. Yeah, it is. Look, I, I drive past light shops and I go in them too because I want to make sure I'm not making anything they have. I poke my head in the door and I walk around and I go, yep, okay, nothing of mine in here, that's good, because I don't want to make what's run-of-the-mill. You know, a lot of them are chrome and white and, and beige uh, or black, and it's it's just all very, I find, quite boring. And, and, look, my stuff is not for everyone, but they are sort of pieces, you know, like they pop in a room. It might be an octopus or a, a squid or whatever, and um, it's pop art or it's, something that looks like a building or something like that. And, and they just come into my head and I just make them. And I use, like, handmade glass and, and they have an industrial edge to them because of the aluminium and rivets. And I don't really know. I get small little ideas and I build on them fairly quickly and then, you know, then I turn it into a light. Most of them work. Sometimes I have things I go, no, I know, though. When I get halfway into something, if I know it's a, it's a horror, I just chuck it. Right. Pull, the, pull the pin early. How do I find out about you? How do people... Well, look, I've only just started... I've spent about a year, over a year and a half, changing my workshop because it was a mechanics workshop. I closed that business down. I just had enough. I'd been in the business for so long. My hands were starting to go. I have hearing, hearing issues. So trying to diagnose cars uh, is difficult. So I ended up... I've done that. I put mezzanine floors in for the gallery spaces. The lower level is the workshop area. And, and you know, it's taken me a year and a half to fill those spaces, and now I'm at the marketing stage. So I'm doing, you know, Google Ads, and 
and I've done some uh, newspaper uh, magazine articles and as with you, this is another one. This is great. You know, it all helps. Everything helps. It flows very naturally. Jim, it's, yeah, been, yeah. it's been lovely to talk to you, Jim. I, I appreciate your time. Think I know we had a few technical details uh, trying to work out to get this to work, but uh, thank you for your patience and for your information. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that's Jim Cowden who is the founder and creative energy behind oilyragstudio.com.au, where he will make now some very modern sculptured lighting, but he has a background that has a love of the beauty and the mechanics and the materials of, that have been involved in some great motor cars. And a full interview with Jim Cowden will soon be placed on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Service, Jim Cowden and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or our podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube sites. Look for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>